The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Phil Agnew, and you are listening to The Nudge Podcast. On this show, as many of you know, we look at behavioral science and see how it can be applied to marketing. But regularly, usually once a month, I get asked about something else. Instead of applying behavioral science to marketing, many of you get in touch wanting to know about applying behavioral science at work. Now, most of you listening to this will work in an organization and many of you are keen to figure out how to become more productive, to be a better manager and to improve the decisions you make. Well, behavioral science can help with all of these things. In this episode, we'll cover how behavioral science can be applied in the workplace. You'll hear studies which showcase the problem with overconfidence, the best ways to seek advice, and how to give feedback. I'll share snippets from the behavioral science expert and best-selling author Steve Martin, and you'll hear from Bruce Daisley, former VP at Twitter and host of the Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat podcast. But let's start with an important question. How can you make better decisions at work? Octavius Black is CEO at MindGym, one of the UK's largest behavioural science agencies. They've helped over half the FTSE 100 and the S&P 100 apply behavioural science at work. On a recent BBC4 radio show, Octavius shared a study which caught my attention. This study analysed the performances of companies after a change of CEO. It reviewed hundreds of companies' market cap, essentially their stock market performance, and looked for trends. And something interesting appears. In general, the companies with new CEOs do see an increase, an improvement in performance. Usually this happens about five to seven years after the CEO starts. That's when the performance peaks. But then the performance starts to drop. So CEOs start in a new role, they tend to improve things peaking, but then performance drops off. And this is consistent across lots of different industries and companies. And MindGym has a hypothesis that this is in part due to the confirmation bias. Now, all of us struggle with the confirmation bias. It's the idea that we seek information that matches our worldview. But when a new CEO starts, they do their best to counter the confirmation bias. They'll seek opinions from a diverse range of internal and external sources, which of course helps them make better decisions and boosts the performance of the company. But later on, the problems start. Once we start hitting targets, we get a bit complacent and we get a bit overconfident. And that desire to seek a diverse range of opinions, well, it fades. Instead, we fall back into getting advice from the trusted sources and the performance of the company drops. The confirmation bias affects us all, especially when we're overconfident. And overconfidence is something all of us in organisations need to be aware of. Studies show that the more senior you become, the more likely you are to fall foul of overconfidence. Individuals tend to overweight the probability of success in almost every business endeavour, and this overconfidence only becomes more prominent with success. 
This bias towards overconfidence is so prevalent that Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning author of Thinking Fast and Slow, said that if he could eliminate one bias with a magic wand, he'd pick overconfidence. So how do we avoid overconfidence in the workplace? Can we use Kahneman's magic wand to eradicate it? Well, Professor David Halpern, CEO at the Behavioural Insights team, shares a solution. In his book, Inside the Nudge Unit, he states that one way of overcoming overconfidence is by asking for feedback from a group rather than an individual. He shares studies that show when a group of people are asked to assess whether a project will succeed on schedule, their combined views tended to be far more accurate. The group consensus filters out individuals' overconfidence. At Hotjar, where I worked on the product marketing team, we applied this principle to our hiring process. Rather than taking it in turns to share what we thought about a job candidate after an interview, which when you take turns like that would inevitably cause whoever went first to to bias everybody else, we would instead score each candidate in private and then share our scores at the same time. This process led to some interesting situations. Sometimes our scores for a candidate would be very similar, but at other times they'd be wildly different, with some of us saying we should definitely hire this person, with others saying that we absolutely should not. Gauging the consensus of the group helped us take all of our views into account, all of our unbiased, unfiltered views, and this ultimately improves the hiring process. By taking the group view, we removed overconfidence from the process. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com slash service to do more for your customers today. I'm a bit of a productivity nut. I'm constantly looking to read, watch and listen to anything that will help me improve my productivity. I can't help myself. I'm on this never ending mission to optimize my work. And I probably spend more time watching videos on productivity than I actually do being productive. See, I think most of us really want to be more productive. And so I've often wondered, does behavioral science offer an answer? Well, It sort of does. David Halpern, who I referenced earlier, he spent a lot of time analysing workplace productivity and exploring how different incentives boost or hamper productivity. One finding, which we've spoken about before on the show, is that financial incentives don't tend to be very effective. They tend to have a great short-term boost, making individuals perform better for a few weeks, but those improvements decay quickly. The boost doesn't last. So David and his team tested a number of different other incentives, ranging from quadrupling the pay to removing incentives entirely. 
The results they uncovered were surprising, to say the least. It turns out employees are most incentivized by something Halpern calls social incentives. Essentially, you give an employee a small financial bonus, say 100 or 200 pounds, but you tell them that half of that incentive has to be gifted to a colleague. So essentially, you get a much smaller financial incentive than you would have usually, and you have to give half away. It really doesn't sound like it should work, and yet it does. This incentive was far more likely to boost productivity for a longer period of time than a much greater financial incentive. The Behavioural Insights team gave a couple of reasons why. Here's the first reason. See, asking someone to share their incentive meant that employees had to be constantly on the lookout for other highly productive colleagues to decide who to gift their incentive to. This helped build a culture of high performance where everybody in the business is trying to be more productive. The second reason was simple. It generally feels much better to give away money than it does to gain the equivalent amount. We get an irrational glow from giving away cash, which people treasure. So they work harder to get that same reward again. It's a classic example of how often the irrational approach tends to be the rational one. Here's another example of the irrational biases we have in the workplace. It's from Steve Martin, New York Times bestseller and CEO of Influence at Work, and he explains how managers who say yes to every task often look less productive than their peers. So this is a set of studies that was led by uh, Frank Flynn, uh, a US-based researcher, who conducted a, a... an analysis of, of, of middle to senior managers in a, in a large telecoms organization. And, and here's what he found. He found that um, those managers who proactively gave to others, looked for ways to help colleagues, uh, other departments uh, to cooperate and to collaborate, were not only more liked by those colleagues and those other departments, but they were considered more productive as well. And that will surprise no one at all, uh, because that's how the rule works. We've uh, come to recognize that. that. There's no surprise there. What's surprising about Frank's research is that there was another set of managers who did exactly the same thing. They looked for ways to help others, both individuals within their teams and cross departments, uh, by giving of information, cooperating, collaborating. And they were considered the least productive managers in the organization. Now, this is this is the surprise now, is that how can one group of managers who are doing one thing uh, seem uh, be rated as much more productive? And there's another group uh, who are doing exactly the same thing that aren't. And, and it, it turns out that it's the way in which they recognize and value the help that they do give to others. Uh, so the less productive managers were the, organ- were the kind of people in the organization that would respond to every request. They'd say yes to everything. Uh, they'd help others out. People really liked them. You know, this is a, you know, can always rely on Phil. You go to him for help. He'll always help you, etc. But then they threw away their moment of collaboration, of that 
exchange, you know, so, you know, their, their colleagues would say to them, oh, you know, thanks very much, Phil. And Phil would say, you know, no problem at all. Happy to help. And what they found was that they, they ended up spending so much of their time helping others and not asking for help themselves that that led to their unproductiveness in the organization. Whereas the managers that were much more productive, they helped in equal measure. But when they gave help, they arranged for that help that they were providing to others, you know, other departments, other colleagues, to be seen as and signaled as this is something we do for each other. This is part of an exchange mechanism we have in this organization. You know, I'm doing this because I know that, you know, if the situation was reversed, you'd probably do the same for me. This is what we expect of each other. Or perhaps they would look for ways to give that obligation forward. You know, uh, you know, our, our department is very happy to help your department. And in fact, actually, there's a couple of my members in my team that would really appreciate some insights or advice from you. And, and those aspects of give and take, they, they never ended. They, they were on this kind of cycle of exchange. And that's what Frank Flynn found to be the differentiating, the differentiating factor between those uh, groups of managers. Those were the much more productive. They didn't give less. They didn't use the principle of reciprocity less or, you know, you know, limit their use of it to groups that they just wanted to influence and persuade. What they did was they signaled that it was done in the context of an exchange mechanism that everybody signed up to and that everyone would benefit from. And that was the key difference. So managers who offer to collaborate are more liked and considered more productive. Now that's that's not a surprise. But managers that look to help others but don't ask for anything in return, they're actually seen as less productive, spending so much of their time helping others while not asking for help themselves made these managers seem much less productive than their peers. Here's Steve explaining how you can apply this finding. You know, I'd go one stage further and actually suggest that in certain circumstances, you know, if we are too willing to help others, if we give away too many things to others, we we serve to damage the relationship with those others as well. Now, that's kind of interesting. Uh, there's certainly work in the field of sociology that finds that, um, you know, in family groups, uh, if there's one or two parties that do more for the unit than everyone else, that's a context for resentment. Uh, and there's an irony there. Those that are giving freely of their time and their assistance actually end up serving to resent those that they're actually giving to. It, it, it will often cause breakdowns in relationship. And I, I can see that a similar thing might actually happen in an organization as well, particularly when, um, you know, that exchange doesn't happen in an instant. You know, you, you, you do another department or a colleague a favor. You don't do it because you can then immediately ask them to help you out, you know, right, I've done this for you, Phil, now you owe me. That's not the right thing at all. But it might be in a couple of months time that, you know, you get an opportunity to help me. And you may just simply have forgotten about what happened two months ago. It's it's very easy to actually forget what happened two days ago, or sometimes even two hours ago, such as the speed in which our world is is operating now. So those mechanisms of exchange and and, and mutual exchange between individuals and, and groups and departments are, are vitally important 
not just for the pro- productiveness of the organization, but for the, for the health uh, and, the re- and the relationship aspect of the organization as well. If we offer too much support to others without asking for anything in return, it can apparently damage relationships within an organization. As Steve puts it, mutual exchange is vital for the health of an organization. To be honest, I've never considered this before, and I have been a bit of a yes-man at previous companies where I've worked. I've quickly agreed to everything and, and never really asked for much in return. And I can see firsthand the problems this caused. It made me less productive as I was constantly context switching and probably made others think that I was a handy teammate rather than a trusted peer. Another thing I've struggled at at work is giving critical feedback. I hate telling people about something they've done wrong. I just find it so tough to do. And yet, all the evidence out there tells us that giving critical feedback is vital for high-performing teams. So, can behavioural science help? Is there a way to give critical feedback without demotivating your teammates? Well, David Halpern has a solution. And surprisingly, this solution doesn't come from organisational studies but from research into marriages. Psychologists for decades have analysed what makes a marriage more likely to succeed. And one of the best predictors of a successful marriage is something called the complement ratio. Now, this is the ratio of positive to negative remarks that you say or someone says about their spouse. Now, the magic number that the best marriages seem to have is a 5 to 1 positive to negative remarks ratio. In other words, for every negative thing you say to your spouse, you should be backing it up with at least five positive comments. Now, obviously, this shouldn't be used as a superficial tactic. You should genuinely mean the positive things you say, and it shouldn't be used as an excuse for a free dig at your partner if you've complimented them a lot already. No, instead, it's a clear trend that successful managers seem to share. Five positive compliments for one constructive comment. And David Halpern suggests that the same ratio applies to workplaces. See, study after study show that the best managers are managers who double down on positive feedback following that five to one ratio. The managers that don't, the ones that only highlight negative things, or perhaps just do a 50-50 split of positive to negative comments, well, these managers encounter problems, usually because their relationship takes this sort of downward spiral and starts to break apart. The thing is, we're just not wired to accept endless negative feedback. We need positive recognition to get by. Here's Bruce Daisley, the author of the best-selling book, Joy of Work, the UK's best-selling business hardback book of 2019. Here's him explaining this phenomenon. There's a strange thing when, when it comes to assessing the impact of bosses. Nothing has more impact on our experience of work than bosses. A friend of mine, Professor Sir Carrie Cooper, he often describes it as the line manager lottery. He says, you know, people generally resign from a bad boss rather than a bad company. Two teams sitting next to each other can have completely different workplace engagement scores simply based on their, their manager. So it seems to have a massive impact on our experience. But the one thing that we know that if you can't be a good boss, then being a good supportive colleague is the next best thing. And the, the power of praise is remarkable. In fact, when we look at bosses who see themselves as Simon Cowell-style figures, sort of critical and, and analytical, they seem to produce much less 
impact in lifting their team's results upwards than people who just act as a selective cheerleader, calling things out when things go wrong. In fact, this, this doesn't just extend to work. This extends to personal relationships. People generally feel happier about their relationship when they feel their partner loves them, admires them, supports them. It's more than anything. It's that sense of belongingness, I think. You know, human beings are sort of atavistically programmed to hate rejection. And anything that redoubles our sense of feeling wanted, belonging, seems in the very least to be helpful. So I think this is it. It's like it's an important reminder to bosses. We might see avenues to be critical. I think we just need to be really clear about when to be critical and how we can how we can get the, the most out of that. If you can't if you can't necessarily be the best manager, be the, the biggest supporter seems to be a lesson. Research consistently shows that praise improves performance. Studies find that managers who only praise create better performing employees, even if they fail to highlight clear flaws in the employee's performance. A study in the US and Spain found managers who communicated motivationally were more effective than those who offered financial rewards. And in contrast, that pure negative feedback, well, if you do that, it left teams feeling confused, disengaged and more likely to quit, according to a 2015 Harvard Business Review paper. Praise is even more valuable when it comes from someone who knows what they're talking about. Now, you could summarise all of this by saying being nice makes you a good manager. Now, I think it's more nuanced than that, but the research shows that plain and simple nice gestures greatly improve performance. And at the very least, following that five to one ratio seems like a a solid place to start. Because being complimented seems to boost performance in all sorts of areas, not just the workplace. So for example, doctors who receive a bag of sweets from their patients as a compliment are actually far better at coming up with a creative solution to a problem at hand. But we all know that negative feedback is necessary. We can't blindly praise an employee if they're doing something that's blatantly wrong. So what should we do in this scenario? Well, according to Octavius Black, the Mind Gym CEO who I mentioned earlier, a lot of feedback isn't helpful at all. In the BBC4 radio episode, which I've linked to in my show notes, he shares that 52% of feedback improves performance, but 33% actually makes performance worse, and 15% has no effect whatsoever. So almost half of all feedback given is useless. So almost half of all feedback given is useless. It's either making things worse or just not having an effect. This is a real shame because most of us like me struggle to pluck up the courage to give feedback in the first place. It's hard to do. And hearing that only half of it is useful is just disheartening. But there is a behavioural science solution. Octavius Black shares research that has looked at effective feedback. Studies have shown that the best type of feedback, the feedback that's most likely to improve performance, has a common trait. It's descriptive. Descriptive feedback tends to improve performance. So instead of saying something general, like, I don't think you're good with research, or I think you're very organised, you should aim to be descriptive. So you should say something like, I'd like you to add a source for your charts. Or, I love how you arrive on time to every meeting. 
Studies show that this type of feedback, this descriptive feedback, boosts productivity and improves performance. So when you pluck up the courage to offer that little bit of negative feedback after hopefully five compliments, make sure it's descriptive. Okay, folks, that is all for today. I really hope you've enjoyed today's show. I know heaps of you have been in touch to ask to do a show specifically on applying behavioral science in the workplace, so I hope you enjoyed this. There were three sources that I relied on to make this show. The first is uh, Bruce Daisley's brilliant book, Joy of Work. It's an incredible resource explaining how to improve your experience of work. I've left a link to that book in the show notes, so check that out. I've also left a link to the episode that he did on Nudge, so go back and listen to that if you haven't already. I also went back and re-listened to some of the very, very early Nudge episodes with Steve Martin. He shared heaps of fascinating findings on the small things you can change in your workplace that have a big impact on performance. So if you want to listen to those shows that he did on Nudge, check out the links in the show notes as well. And then finally, I got a lot of inspiration from the BBC Radio 4 show, Bottom Line. Their episode on behavioural science helped source a lot of the content I've shared in the show, and I've left a link to that in the show notes as well. Now, selfishly, I kind of hope this episode, which is talking a lot about feedback, has inspired you to leave some feedback of your own, and perhaps some feedback for me and this podcast. So if you fancy leaving a bit of feedback, you can do so by leaving a review of Nudge if you listen on Apple or Spotify. I read every single review, and I appreciate every single one, positive or negative. Hopefully they've got that 5 to 1 positive ratio, um, but I really do appreciate them all, so please do leave a review on there and let me know what you think. Or if you want to email me and share your thoughts privately you can do so you can email me i'm phil at nudgepodcast.com that's phil at nudgepodcast.com but the phil is with two l's not one and i'm on twitter i'm p underscore agnew a-g-n-e-w so you can give me a follow on there and let me know what you thought of this show and you can also let me know have you applied these approaches have any of them worked for you i would love to hear and i'd love for you to get in touch all right well thanks again for listening to today's episode of nudge cheers